and welcome back to the Plantopia podcast. I'm Jim Bradine, a professor of plant pathology and associate vice president for strategy at Colorado State University and our beautiful brand new CSU Spur campus in Denver, Colorado. And I'm the host of Plantopia. Today, we are going to hear from Don Mathry. Don is a professor emeritus from Montana State University. Um, he had a very long and productive research and teaching career. He also had incredible administrative impacts. He twice served as department head and uh, served a stint as the research associate dean for Montana Agricultural Experiment Station. Don is a widely recognized expert on soil-borne diseases, um, especially soil-borne diseases of small grains. And he um, has a, a long publication history, in, including uh, serving as editor of the APS Compendium of Barley Diseases. Don is a fellow of the AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And he has a long history of service uh, and, and leadership in APS, the American Phytopathological Society. And his contributions have include, uh, included service on multiple editorial boards, uh, service as president of the APS Pacific Division and as APS president in 1989. Don is also the namesake for the APS Don E. Mathry Student Travel Award. So we've got a lot of ground to cover today. And Don, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. So Don, I'm struggling with really where to begin because you really have had so many impacts and um, there's so many things that I really want to know about um, your career and your perspective on our field. But I, I think I'd really, in this case, like to start at the beginning, the, the, your professional beginning. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your academic background and how you got into the field of plant pathology in the first place? Sure. Well, I grew up in Iowa and Kansas. My dad was a county agent, so I've always had some association with agriculture though I never lived on a farm, but I went to Iowa State University, uh, majored in botany. And during that time, I met my good wife, Judy, and she was also a botany major. Uh, my start in plant pathology occurred during this time because I worked for Artie Browning during the summers. And Artie is a well-known oat uh, pathologist who was also president of APS when he was active. And uh, I worked for him during this one uh, summer uh, the next summer, I transferred to Boyce Thompson Institute in uh, Yonkers, New York, where George McNew was the director. George had previously been head of the botany department at Iowa State, but he was director of uh, Boyce Thompson Institute, and he too was a former president of uh, APS. And I worked at Boyce Thompson for two summers, one for Lawrence Miller, and the second summer, uh, I worked in the area of uh, rust diseases. So those kind of got me started in plant pathology. Then uh, when I graduated in 1960, uh, I went out to tour uh, various graduate schools to see which one would be best fit for me. So I went to UC Berkeley uh, during the Christmas vacation and uh, visited with a couple of people there. The next day I went up to UC Davis and had a nice visit with the faculty there and uh, made the decision that I thought that Davis was probably a little more tuned into my kinds of uh, interests than, than was Berkeley. So I went home and uh, during that time, I was awarded a NSF graduate uh, fellowship, which meant that I could go any place I wanted to with all of my 
tuition and fees uh, covered. So graduated in 1960 and went out to UC Davis then uh, the fall of 1960 and uh, mainly took classes during that time. Um, over the next uh, two years, uh, my fellowship ran out and George McNew contacted me and he says, you know, we have a research station at Grass Valley, California. They're working on pine and insect relationships. We need somebody to work on the effects of the blue stain fungus that goes along with uh, the pine bark beetle. Would I be interested in doing that as a research thesis? And if so, the Boyce Thompson Institute would support my work there. So um, I said yes, and Bob Campbell at UC Davis uh, decided he would be my major professor. So that's where I, I got my start in plant pathology, graduated in 1964. And the department there offered me a faculty position, and but it was to work on cotton. And I had never seen a cotton plant in my life, but uh, Lyle Leach, the head of the department said, you've got a good general background in plant pathology, you'll do just fine. So I stayed on at UC Davis working in cotton diseases. And during the next three years, had a, a very interesting experience getting involved with uh, the political side of plant pathology, if you ever think of one. And that had to do with uh, a disease of cotton verticillium wilt, but it also had to do with a law that the California legislature had passed that suggested that made it mandatory that only one variety of cotton be planted in the San Joaquin Valley of California. And that was the valley, uh, the variety called Acala 442. So I got started with that. And uh, of course, one of the things you're looking for is disease resistance, but uh, there was none about that time. But uh, Steve Wilhelm at Berkeley also got involved with that uh, disease. And uh, he, by the time I left in 1967 to move up to uh, Bozeman, Montana, Montana State University, um, Steve continued to work on verticillium wilt and eventually got the one variety law uh, canceled and allowed the, for other varieties of uh, cotton to be grown. And hopefully uh, since then, uh, the verticillium root problem has been somewhat averted. So, so, so Don, Don I, I have to interrupt because I, I'm really fascinated to learn that there was this one variety law. Could you talk about that or what the rationale was for that? Uh, the one variety law was uh, actually asked for by the grow cotton growers of California to protect the high quality uh, of their cotton. It had a long fiber, strong fiber, and was much higher quality than cotton in the Southeast. And as a result, they got a premium price for it. And so California legislature passed this one variety law, which worked very well for the cotton growers for uh, quite a long time. But eventually when the disease verticillium wilt moved in, um, being able to grow a different variety led to the fact that they eventually rescinded this law. So it was a case of maybe good business practice, but bad biology. I think that's right. <laughs> so it sounds as though um, UC Davis was really important in your development as a plant pathologist, first as a graduate student, and then as an early career assistant professor. Could, could you talk a little bit about your decision-making process, how you ended up at UC Davis, and what advice you have for maybe undergrad students or graduate students who are looking at different grad programs right now. What, what should they be looking for? I think what they really need to find is a, 
a very strong faculty that's very much oriented towards agriculture, both uh, problem solving, but also in basic research. And uh, the faculty at Davis at the time I was there was just outstanding. Uh, Ray Grogan uh, was one of the best professors I ever had. He knew more about all diseases of all plants of anybody I ever knew. Um, and plus there are a number of other professors there I won't name, but uh, the quality of the faculty has got to be high on, on their list. But they also need to find out whether the faculty is interested in working with graduate students. Not every faculty member wants to have graduate students, but I found the ones that Davis to be very much interested in training and giving advice to students and then getting out of the way and, and letting them work, which is what happened in my case. Yeah, that, that's really great advice. And I think that, that certainly rings true um, to, to me as well. Um, it, it strikes me though, that higher ed has really changed quite a bit since I was in grad school, since we were in grad school. Um, can you comment a little bit on those changes in, in higher ed and what, what you see as different today than, than when you first started your career? Well, one thing that comes to mind is the fact that we had to learn two foreign languages uh, before we could get our PhD. And so you had to pass uh, an exam. I did it both in uh, German and in French, but uh, th that took a lot of time uh, away from being uh, learning about plant pathology that I don't know of any school in the country now that requires a foreign language uh, as a requirement for a degree. So that's certainly one thing. And the whole uh, development in molecular biology and computers is certainly way different than when I was first started out. I typed my thesis on an electric typewriter. Nobody would even do that today. So those are changes that have occurred uh, that I, I see as being uh, fairly major. I, I'm, I'm laughing to myself right now. I just came from a PhD defense just before um, this conversation and and um, reflecting on the the size and but but also the quality of that thesis, uh, very different than what um, you and I might have produced when we were in grad school. <laughs> so I, I, I do see those big changes. So you you started your uh, your career as a faculty member first at UC Davis, but you ended up at Montana State. Can can you talk about that transition? I found out about an opening at Montana State at. Uh... Christmas time, about 1966, I believe it was. And uh, I talked to my wife about it. Both of us had come out of the Midwest and we had always thought that maybe eventually we'd like to return to the Midwest. Well, Montana is certainly not the Midwest, but it's far different than California. So uh, we decided to make the change. Uh, there was a, a student, a co-student of mine, Gary Strobel, who uh, had gone to UC Davis and had come to Bozeman about three years earlier. And I told him if a job ever opens up in Bozeman, uh, let me know, I might like to take a look at it. And so uh, I got a phone call from the department head, came up to interview and made the decision, yes, we're moving to Bozeman. And we got here July 1st of 1967. And my wife and the family here are so glad that I made that change and I am too. That's really wonderful. And um, you, you certainly had a very productive career with Montana State. Uh, much of your research focused on soil-borne diseases of small grain crops, and I think you worked a little bit in biocontrol as, as well. That's right. Most of my time was spent on the, you know fungal diseases like ergot in small grains, uh, dwarf bund in small grains, 
And then towards the end of my career, I got involved in some biocontrol work that uh, uh, led me to cooperate with Jim Cook over at Washington State University, which was a very productive relationship. It's really fantastic. And um, you also, while at Montana State, taught um, undergrad courses as well as graduate courses. And if I'm not mistaken, you um, received multiple teaching awards. Well, I don't know about multiple awards, but I did teach quite a few classes. I really enjoyed teaching the introductory plant pathology and introductory mycology because these were classes that students had never had any exposure to. And so it was something that was new to them. They weren't repeating, you know, introductory biology or whatever. And so it was fun to relate uh, my personal experiences that I had in dealing with plant pathology. And uh, um, it made a lot of fun. And then towards about mid-career, I also started offering some graduate classes, uh, particularly one in soil-borne diseases. And that allowed me to really get involved with some of the very uh, deep and good work that had gone on in soil-borne diseases from all over the world. So I, I enjoyed teaching that graduate class as well. It's wonderful. And, and um, teaching is one of the, the joys, I think, of being a faculty member um, for, for many of us. And, and I think it really underscores the importance of uh, passion for, for our field. And you talked a little bit about um, how mentors shaped your career. And I, I'm also hearing you articulate that as an instructor, you were really passionate about what you were teaching and pass that on to students. Is, is there anything you want to comment about mentorship and, and the importance of mentors? Well, I think that's true. I, I didn't have a lot of graduate students that worked under me and over my career, probably maybe a dozen or so. But uh, I really enjoyed uh, having students learn about the real world of agriculture and the real world of plant pathology and how it interfacts with agriculture. And, uh, and also got involved with some of the really critical things. Uh, probably the most interesting one I got involved with was dwarf bunt of wheat. Um, this got involved in uh, uh, interaction with the Chinese. Uh, the Chinese liked to buy our wheat up until about 1971 or two. And then all of a sudden they stopped buying our wheat because they said it had TCK smut. Well, nobody in the United States knew what TCK smut was, um, hadn't heard that acronym before, but we finally determined that they meant it was Talisha Controversa Coon, which is dwarf bunt of wheat. And myself and several others, Jim Hoffman, particularly of the USDA, got involved with negotiations with the Chinese over the next 25 years to convince them that this was not a pathogen like late blight of potatoes that was gonna wipe out their wheat crop. That was one thing they kept tossing at us all the time was we don't want a pathogen that's gonna destroy our wheat crop. Well, um, we even uh, had one of their Chinese scientists uh, come over here and spend two years working with us. Um, Mr. Zhang Zhang was his name and he, he lived in Bozeman here for a while, mostly spent his time at Corvallis, Oregon. But um, we had him put dwarf bunch spores on wheat and uh, planted out in a variety of areas around Montana and the Pacific Northwest to determine what fact, uh, effect weather had on dwarf bunt. Well, probably many of you don't realize that dwarf bunt is a disease strictly of winter wheat. 
the spores have to have a long period of around freezing temperatures, 32 degrees Fahrenheit for about six weeks for infection to occur. Well, that only occurs under long periods of snow cover, which occurs in isolated valleys of Montana, Idaho, Washington, uh, maybe even Colorado. I'm not sure about that. But uh, he found that uh, you could put a lot of spores on the wheat seed, and if they didn't have that proper climate, they did not infect the grain. But um, it took a long time for the Chinese finally to realize that maybe they could tolerate uh, some spores on their wheat, uh, get away from what they called a zero tolerance. And zero tolerance on anything is really hard to meet. But uh, by 1999, I believe it was, they finally established the fact that they could tolerate a minimum quantity of spores. And this reopened the trade between the Pacific Northwest and China uh, for wheat. And to this day, they are, st they are still buying our wheat. But that was uh, an interesting time and a period to see how plant pathology interacts with international agriculture. And it comes right back to the disease triangle. Absolutely. All three <laughs> things are required. It's great. And it does sound as though throughout your career, you've had many um, experiences in politics meets plant pathology, if, if you want to call it that, but um, particularly in that international trade. That was certainly the most interesting one that I had. I got involved in a few other uh, legal things, uh, one of which I used in teaching in plant pathology and then eventually wrote a uh, a lesson that APS has on their education site called Naughty Pete. Uh, Pete spelled P-E-A-T, and it had to do with contamination of uh, peat uh, by a pathogen and whether it would affect the growth of uh, trees for forestry. That particular... and we'll, we'll provide a link to that on the Plantopio webpage. Okay, great. Uh, that eventually went to a lawsuit that I had to testify in, and uh, had to do with whether the, the peat producer had actually monitored whether there were any pathogen in their peat or not. But uh, it certainly uh, wiped out a quarter of a million uh, seedlings in one greenhouse in northern Montana um, and before we figured out what was going on. But it turns out it was a pathogen, a combination of pythium and fusarium that was causing the problem. Great. Plant pathology really is a, a field that can take you in many, many different directions. And, and well, that's, I think that... one, that's one of the things of uh, advice to students would be stay flexible. Um, you never know exactly where a new thing is gonna pop up and they're gonna take you in a new direction. Uh, I never had any idea I would work on dwarf bunt, uh, but when that Chinese situation developed, uh, it provided an opportunity to get involved in a in a new area of plant pathology. So stay flexible and be willing to work on a lot of different things in a lot of different ways too. Yeah. And plant pathology is never boring because of that. <laughs> it certainly hasn't been to me. <laughs> I'd like to talk now about um, APS, the American Phytopathological Society, and your, your roles in APS and what it meant to you throughout your career. Well, my very first interaction was to become secretary of the Pacific Division of APS. And that allowed me to get involved with the, that action. And eventually that led to me being president of the, of the Pacific Division. And I went to the Pacific Division meetings, led a lot of good uh, 
fellow faculty members that way and interacted with students. And uh, one thing led to the other, eventually became a counselor from the Pacific Division. So that put me on the APS general board. And that started about 1979, 1980 thereabouts. And for the next 11 years, I was on APS council in the, as either a counselor or as president elect and so forth. So it was a wonderful 11 year period that I saw lots of changes uh, happen during that period of time. Well, on behalf of the entire APS membership, let me say thank you so much for your, your leadership and, and service in APS. Um, APS is a volunteer-driven organization, and your, your work really means a lot. Well, it was a fun time. One of the things that I do remember uh, when we were at the old building, now I, I assume that building doesn't exist anymore, but we would have our board meetings once a year, and my first time there uh, the room was so smoke-filled, you could hardly see from one end to the other because that was back when, when smoking was still a very popular thing with a number of the members on the board of APS. Of course, that changed over the years. The other major issue that came up that I remember was um, many plant pathologists were publishing their work in a publication called Plant Disease Reporter, which was put out by the USDA. And about 1979, 1980, thereabouts, they decided not to publish that journal anymore. So the council had to make a determination, were they going to take over that journal? If so, what would it be named? What would be its focus? And how could we afford to do it? And boy, there were back and forth negotiations and discussions on that. And of course, if most of you realize from that uh, came our, um, journal plant disease, which was one of the best decisions that APS Council ever made was to take on that particular journal, but it uh, wasn't without some um, concern about whether we could afford to do that, but it certainly worked out well. It's, I guess, one of our most popular journals today and uh, deservedly so. It, it does remain a very important journal for the society as well as for the discipline, of course. Um, APS is actually one of the, maybe a handful of scientific societies that still manages their own publications. So um, APS publications have grown considerably since the, the start of plant disease, um, but it remains really a very important part of, of our society. That's right. Are there other changes um, that have happened to APS over those years that, that you wanna highlight? Well, you know, I have been retired and out of the area for so long now. I, I think that the council must function quite a bit differently than we used to do at that time. Um, one of the things that was really striking to me, the year that I was president was, of course, before email and uh, that sort of thing. So we did all of our business by phone. And being president, I was on the phone to headquarters or to other people, you know, four or five times a day. Um, but that's just the way we did business. So after the meeting in which I gave up the presidency to the next president, I went home and the phone didn't ring. It just stayed quiet. <laughs> was it, it lonely? Was so striking <laughs> that, uh, okay, you're out of it now. The phone doesn't need to ring anymore. So that's one, one big change. Now I'm assuming it's all of this communication is done pretty much electronically. And certainly the, the, the pandemic that we're 
we're still living through has, has really changed the, the functionality of uh, APS leadership um, as, as many other facets of life. So a lot of, of uh, council business now is done remotely. Um, and, you know, of course, there, there are significant um, financial savings as well as environmental impacts that are, are um, drivers there as well. So APS continues to evolve, I think, is, is the take-home message there. Um, I, I'd love your perspective, though. Why, why should a young professional in, in plant pathology or perhaps a student studying plant pathology, why should they get involved in APS? The biggest thing I could say is that you need to go to the annual meeting. And this is to establish the relationships, not only with other graduate students, but with other young faculty people that, uh, you know, enthusiasm breeds on itself. And so it's one way to, to um, get involved with other faculty members who are as enthusiastic about the field as you are. It's also a good way to find out about new products, new varieties, new techniques. Um, I went to every phytopath meeting I think that I could. I don't know that I missed more than one maybe in my career. Um, and I just found that so, and of course, the other big thing is the journals that allow you to publish the results of your research. And so I used both phytopathology and plant disease as a major outlets for the research that I did. That's great. And um, thank you for the plug for the annual meeting. Uh, the APS annual meeting is now called Plant Health and will take place this August in Pittsburgh. Um, this actually is our first in-person meeting um, since pre-pandemic. -pre so it, it really will be um, a, a wonderful opportunity for scientists to, to get together and get to know each other. So you've also been very involved in APS Foundation. Um, and foundation is, is the philanthropic arm of, of APS, so raises um, funds on behalf of APS programming. Um, could you talk a little bit about your role with APS Foundation? Well, I don't remember exactly what year I started with the foundation, but uh, I think I served on the board for well, at least six years, uh, three years as chairman. And back when we first uh, started, uh, the student travel awards were one of the major uh, activities of the board, and uh, I was helped uh, raise funds for that. We would have uh, a booth at the annual meeting where people could come up and make a pledge or a donation. And the longer I got involved with the foundation, I realized there's some other ways that, that my wife and I could help, and one of those was to establish the, the Mathry Education Fund, I think still exists to this day. So we were more than pleased to be able to do that. And I would encourage anybody in plant pathology to, if you get a chance to be on the foundation board, do so because it's a, a very positive uh, function of the society. Excellent, thank you so much. Is there anything else you wanna share about APS, about plant pathology advice for our early career professionals? I think we've covered about everything as I told, you earlier, the flexibility is my byword to the students of uh, if you're going to have a good career, um, be flexible, look at lots of different things, uh, you'll find enjoyment on a lot of them. That, that's excellent um, advice and, and a, a great way to end this uh, conversation. Don, thank you so much for, for meeting with us today and for sharing your, your insights. It has been a pleasure.
Great. Um, so we just heard from Don Mathry, Professor Emeritus from Montana State University and former APS president. I'm Jim Bradeen, the host of the Plantopia podcast. Plantopia is a production of the American Phytopathological Society. Thank you so much for joining today, and we look forward to next time.